The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. your Bible this morning, I would invite you to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, and if you're visiting with us this morning, we have been in a months-long study since the beginning of the year over the book of Hebrews, and we are ending today chapter 9, getting into chapter 10, and uh, uh, it is a miracle of miracles. We talked about miracles in our Sunday school class, something that breaks the laws of nature. I'm pretty sure the speed at which we're going is a miracle of God. We are breaking all speed barriers in Darren's sermon delivery and scheduling, and, and uh, thank you for your patience. But one thing you will know as we go through this again is that it is going to sound repetitive, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I want you to know that the author of Hebrews feels it important. It's the inspired word of God, and we need to go over it again. You say, well, Darren, when are you going to talk about marriage and family? When are you going to talk about cultural issues? When are you stop talking about the sacrifice of Jesus? Well, those things have their place. They do. But this is the foundation of everything we are. And so as the book of Hebrews goes through this, I want you to know that as he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he did not, not think of such things. He didn't have in mind just to talk about Jesus all the time, but he did. And so I want you to know, as we've been hammering home week after week the greatest hope we have in Christ, I pray it sinks even deeper into your soul because without that, we have no hope. And so with that in mind, if you're able to stand, will you stand this morning in honor of God's word as we read together? We're gonna start in verse 15 where we planted last week for one verse, for one sermon. We're gonna be reading down through the end of the chapter. The end of chapter nine, we said last week, chapter nine, verse 15 was a transition to the coming chapters, uh, basically through the end of chapter 11. And so I wanna start there as we move forward as he continues to discuss why Christ's one sacrifice is better than the daily sacrifices of the old covenant. So verse 15 and following, hear God's word this morning. It says in Hebrews 9, 15, therefore he, that is Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Four, verse 16, where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For in every commandment of the law, verse 19, had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he took, he sprinkled, uh, excuse me, in the same way he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins or remission, if you have the old King James, of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies, verse 23, of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear into the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. 4 verse 26, then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. 
But as it is, he has appeared once for all by the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after comes the judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's a breathful. But it really is all about Jesus loves you, he cared for you, he died for you, he's coming for you, and oh, by the way, you're going to stand before him too. We'll talk about all those things this morning. Will you bow your heads with me as we go before our Lord? Father, as we come to you in the study of a greater than and filling in this week with the title of any hope, you are greater than any hope. Anything that we could trust in this world or hold on to in the Old Testament, although they were initiated by you and orchestrated by you, they were ultimately temporary coverings, Father, for sending the greatest hope we have, your Son, our Savior, the risen Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that today you teach us, you point us, you direct our hearts and our minds back to the truth of what this is saying. Move me out of the way, move us out of the way. May your Spirit illuminate and light our hearts. We pray these things today in Jesus' name and God's will said, amen. Maybe seated. Well, when I went to William Jewell College many years ago, back when Leon was still uh, a ripe old age, as it were, I, Leon, I love you, brother. There was a physics professor we had, and, and he knew that we had to take this physics class because us dummies who weren't science people had to learn science. We were in a, a liberal arts education, which meant kind of like Matt said, you had a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But he had a phrase he kept saying, maybe you've heard this before. He would come up and say, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. And then I will tell you, and I'll tell you what I told you, and then I'll review it. <laughs> Sounds like every parent or grandparent everywhere. Let me say that again. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'll tell you, then I'll tell you what I told you, and then I'll review and I'll tell it to you again. Sounds like the book of Hebrews, doesn't it? The book of Hebrews is a major repetition. The author of Hebrews follows the same pattern over and over. Jesus is here. Here's everything else. And if Jesus were a boxing match, he would TKO out everything else, as it were, as they fall to the ropes and, and go against the grain. The book of Hebrews is like that physics professor. He's telling you over and over and over and over and over and over. Do you get that point? Again and again and again and again. If Jesus isn't superior to what you are trusting into with your life, it's not worth trusting in is basically where he's at. He's better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than the old sacrifices, blood, goats, everything, priest, because he is Jesus and he is God himself. In a nutshell, if our trust is in Christ alone for salvation, we will escape God's judgment. Jonah 2.9, and this will be up on the screen, one of my favorite verses, Jonah in the belly of the whale, or belly of the big fish, whatever it was, literally happening, said, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay, O Lord, because salvation belongs to the Lord. And if you could summarize Hebrews in an Old Testament way, that's probably it. The Lord is my salvation. And so the issues at stake, though, here are eternal. And the, rep the repetitiveness seems tedious. The broken record. Do you all, any all, Jeff told me the other day he sold most of his records, I think, or something like that. Do you all still have records? Anyone still have a record player around? I'm not going to ask how long you've had or how old you are, but it's there. He is a broken record or a broken CD or a computer that won't shut off the live stream that keeps playing the same song over and over and over and over on Spotify and Amazon and iTunes or whatever. You get the point. The author says, if God 
is here and God is working among you, then you will hold this to be true. It is Christ and Christ alone. I would rather have that on repeat going through my head than whatever else could be out there that's taking me away from Christ and Christ alone. So this morning, what does this repetition show us? What are the principles stated among us? And that verse, that curious verse we quote often evangelistically, Hebrews 9, 27, it's destined once to die and afterwards the judgment. What does that mean for you? Because if you look at the back of your notes, it has 11 subpoints if you're keeping track, 12 to be exact. We'll get there. But before we get there, the big idea today is simply this, is that we should never stop celebrating, even repetitively, the once and forever forgiveness that is ours because of the willing and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. I am so grateful that you have put up with the preaching of Hebrews for nine months, church, eight months, whatever it is, because a lot of churches would have checked out by now. Don't check out because this kingdom's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's really about Christ, his kingdom, and his glory. And guess what? You can repeat that daily to yourself. It's a good thing. We celebrate our freedom because we are free from the law and we are free from the law because Christ obeyed when we could not. The law says get to work. Jesus said it is done. And that's what we trust in this morning. But I want you to see three principles this morning that are clear from Scripture. Three principles that remind us why this repetitiveness and understanding the death of Christ is necessary. The first principle I want you to see here is stated very clearly. That's the first one. The first is the principle stated. The principle stated. Because you, you remember that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament was marked by repetitiveness. The New Covenant is marked by one sacrifice. The Old Covenant was involved animal blood. The New Covenant is the blood of Christ. The Old Covenant brought a temporary shelter, like you're at a Royals game and it starts raining and everyone runs under the covering trying to get out of the rain kind of thing. It's temporary. You're not meant to live there. But Jesus is an eternal putting away of sin. The old covenant was for Israel only and those who would believe, but the new covenant is for all who would believe in Christ. The old covenant is based on the temple, but now in the heavenly temple, Jesus is, is our mediator on our behalf. But you notice in verses 16 and 17, he states a pretty obvious principle. Did you get that? Verse 16 says it this way again. He says, for, when, uh, for where a will is involved, the death of the one must also be established. There is a phrase going around, and Dave Holdsworth is not here today, but I ran this by him, and he edited it for me. But there is a phrase around that says, when someone dies in your family, quote, wherever there is a will, there is a disgruntled relative. Did you catch that? Wherever there is a will, there is a disgruntled relative. Why? Because when someone dies, it's like blood and water and sharks. I mean, everyone wants a little bit of what the money or the, the, the sports card collection or the land or whatever it is, they want it. You get the principle stated here, don't you? The will cannot go into effect unless someone dies. So what's he talking about? Who's he referring to? Well, I think you understand what this is. A will is a covenant, it's a, it's a legal document that basically wishes, a person's wishes are to be fulfilled, and usually they are. Sometimes people get a little willy-nilly with wills at the end of their lives, but usually what is said legally, at least in the U.S., is fulfilled to what it is. Sometimes that can be really good for the people still alive. It's fair, it's just. Sometimes all the money that someone thought they'd go to went to some random uh, cat in some faraway land. You hear these stories sometimes where a family member doesn't want them to fight, so they donate to some cause no one's ever heard of, and that's the will, and you can't do anything about it. 
So what is he saying? He's saying as long as Jesus is alive, as long as Jesus has not died, everything that has been promised cannot come to pass. But now, verse 17, this will is valid only at death. It's very simple. The heir does not get the inheritance until the person dies. And the heir, the benefactor, must die before his estate is passed on to the heir. In other words, the new covenant, for it to be executed, there must be a death of the benefactor of the covenant, and his name is Jesus. Jesus had to die for everything to come to effect. You say, well, duh. But for these people reading this, that was a big thing. For them to be told once again that there had to be one death, one person, one life in exchange for everything they knew was earth-shattering for them. It would not be unlike telling a Muslim today that you cannot follow Allah and follow Jesus. It is Jesus or nothing, even if that means that you could be uh, on the list of being a, a target by your family for a, a ritual death for crossing over to believe in Jesus Christ. Praise God we don't live in that culture, although there are parts of it that would say that. So what is he saying? This is a very simple, straightforward point. This will be on the screen for your notes. Jesus was so holy, he had to die for us. But he was so loving that he was glad to die for us. How do we know that? Well, we know that he died for us. It's very clear. We've read that numerous times. But it says in Hebrews 12, these verses you well know, that therefore, he says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles us and run the race with endurance that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, I'm going to say it again if I haven't said it enough. He had to die. Could God have blinked his finger, or blinked his finger, whatever you do with your finger, snapped your finger, and everything would have been set right? Maybe so. But in the prophecies, in the will of God, in the sovereign plan of God, one had to come to die, a qualified one. And the only one we knew that could come to die for us is the Holy One Himself, Jesus Christ. So we, the heirs, don't get the benefits if Jesus never died. But aren't you grateful we don't have to sacrifice Him over and over? It happened one time for you. That is the principle stated. Secondly, I want you to see the principle showcase. Look at verses 18 through 22. Verses 18 through 22. I'm just going to walk this through you. Uh, we have some young seminary guys in our midst. This is not necessarily how you should do this, but this is what Nelson would call a walking commentary on the verses. Right, Pastor? As he says in his sermon preparation often. But you see here, it was stated that he had to die, but now he's going to flesh it out. He's going to give you the example illustrated in what that looked like. And to do that, he has to take us back through some history. So look at verse 9, chapter 9, verse 18. He says, therefore, based on this fact that someone had to die, a will had to be executed, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. I mean, you get what this is saying. He's basically saying that, yeah, he, Jesus had to die, but he had to die because blood is always necessary. And if you missed last week, I encourage you to go to Tower of UKC and, and look at this. We have a bloody religion. And when teaching children about Christianity, sometimes it can be weird. Mom, I can't hit my brother and give him a bloody nose, but Jesus can die on a bloody cross. How does that work out? Well, don't hit your brother that way. But in God's eyes, Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. You remember that in Isaiah 53? It was the will of God to crush him for us bloodily, if that is a word. 
But he says, even in the first covenant, without blood, there was no old covenant. He goes on in verse 19. He says, for when even a commandment of the law had been declared by Moses, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and his have been sprinkled, both the book and all itself. Look, everything he's saying is everything that was touched had to be touched by blood. That's a gross thing. I'm just curious. Is anyone squeamish around blood like I am? Anybody? Oh, come on, you guys. Some of y'all hate blood. Some of you, some of you when you see blood, you just you, you pass out because I've seen you pass out, some of you. But you could not be a priest and not touch blood. It was everywhere. So he says in verse 20, he goes on and he says, there's a covenant saying this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you. He's saying once again, that the Mosaic law was commanded. Blood had to be a part of every part of the religion. Ooh. Exodus 24, 8 tells us that. Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments tells us how to live, but every other part about it was about the blood, it was about the hyssop, it was about the scarlet. That was the commandment of God. And when you came under the blood, you had to keep the covenant. To be covered by the blood, you had to be the one who could go under the requirements of the blood. So what did he do with it? Verse 21. And in the same way, he sprinkled blood on both the tent and the vessels in worship. Everything that was in their church, quote unquote, the temple was touched by blood. And so he goes on in verse 22. Why was all this fixation on blood? He was fixated on blood because he tells us, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, but without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why so much blood? Because without it, you cannot be saved. Without it, you cannot be covered. Without it, there is nothing you can do. Did you notice that word in verse 22? Your Bible should have the word almost everything. Almost seems odd. God is so merciful and gracious to us in the old covenant, that there were even those who were too poor to buy a goat or a bull, that, uh, that, that basically that God in his grace would allow them to bring just a simple offering. Some things didn't die. They just were offered up according to Leviticus 5. God has been so gracious that even everyone who wants to come and hear about his grace and his mercy could receive the forgiveness that is found in his name alone. But I want you to focus on that last phrase of verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, Leviticus 17.11 says, and I'm quoting here because he's quoting it, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you for the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The Jewish people celebrated Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement. They celebrated the day that God freed them and God saved them and God covered them under their blood. I mean, think about this in practical terms. When your blood goes bad, what happens to the rest of your body? It dies. It goes bad. That's exactly what happens. So what keeps you healthy to some degree? God's behind it all. But if you have healthy blood, generally, you're going to have a healthy body. I'm looking at all my nurses here among us, and I'm probably going to get a good lecture on, on good science afterwards. But that's the simple version, right? If you have good blood, you probably are going to have good body, generally speaking. And so he says, it's illustrated. He says, look, if you go back to all the Old Testament, everything was covered in blood. And so there had to be blood shed for there to be forgiveness given. And without it, you don't get it. So one had to come and take the spot for you. And one had to come and shed his blood for you. And I think you know who that is. And Amy, if you want to put the next slide up or next little thing up would be great. But that blood came at a cost 
that was costly because those people were under, as it were, and all people are under the wrath of God outside of Jesus Christ. John 3 says that, that the wrath of God abides over you. It remains upon you. For there to be forgiveness, there must be a death and there must be blood. But someone had to die in your place. And oh, we know his name is Jesus, don't we? He had to die in your place. And when our neck was on the chopping block, when our neck was going under the George Foreman grill of God's wrath, however you want to say it, and rightfully so, he sent his son to die for us. He became that big word that if our kids could grow up again and we would teach them from the very beginning, is called propitiation. Can you say that five times fast? Propitiation, propitiation, propitiation. Blah, 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 blah. It means to absorb or appease or take hold of. And Jesus on that cross, when he died for our sins, he shed his blood, yes, but the forgiveness did not come until he absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. And I recall when I first came to this church having a conversation with uh, one of our uh, folks about this or a visitor, I don't recall specifically offhand, about the wrath of God. And the person said, how can you believe that God is a God of wrath? Because the cross shows that he's a God of wrath. Why did, the, why did the, the day get dark? Why did the earth shake? Why did the veil get torn in two? Because the wrath of God stored up for ages to come from all those times and times past and everything in the future was laid bare on his son. His blood was shed, yes. Jesus could skin a knee, but it wouldn't save you. But when he died on that cross and he shed his blood, number one, but number two, he took the wrath of God, the judgment of God for you, that's when you received the forgiveness because it was finished. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And when our neck was on that chopping block, he sent his son for our eternal destiny. And I want to remind you today that grace is not amazing until you know the wrath of God. This does not mean, Christian, at a very practical level, that you have to go around like Fred Phelps, so-called church. You remember that, that group of clowns up in uh, uh, Topeka, I think it is? Just because they have the name Baptist in their church does not mean they're associated with any of us. Do you know what the Southern Baptist churches did back in the day, actually? Do you know why they left? The, they got booted out, even by the liberal Baptists of those days. Look, you can preach hate. You can say, judgment is coming and hold a sign. Been there, done that in Westport for years. I get it. But unless it has changed how you relate to other people, the grace of God has not been amazing enough in your heart because he died for you. He took the wrath of God for you. And that's the God that we serve. And he shows it by the principle, the fact that Christ died for you. He was buried and he rose again. That principle will showcase what principle that he had to die. And I'm gonna tell you about it again and again. I've shared this story before. Our, one of our famous favorite hymns here, I know it's Brian's, is In Christ Alone. We sang it last week. Uh, the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Churches of the United States of America, the liberal branch of the Presbyterian group, several years ago tried to take out the phrase wrath. He satisfied the wrath in that song, In Christ Alone. And, and tried to change it. Brian, you probably recall this. They tried to change it to the love of God. Friends, our God loves, amen? amen? But he also is a God of wrath. The love of God and the wrath of God kissed on the cross, if you want to use those terms. And that is, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, all because the wrath was satisfied. The principle showcased, the principle is, is stated, but number three, I want you to see finally here, 
the principle is secured. The principle of what? The principle of his death. We will see that the application of the death and blood of Christ. Therefore, verse 23, you see that. You might have a therefore, thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. What are the copies? You may remember that when Moses was up on Mount Sinai, he was seeing heavenly visions. He was seeing copies of heavenly things, as it were, being brought down to earthly tents and tabernacles and temples. And if that had to be sprinkled with blood, how much more do we need Christ's blood? He goes on in verse 23. He says these heavenly things with better sacrifices. Look, it's, a, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If it had to happen back in Moses' day, it has to happen in our day. We are not better than them. We are sinners like them. But there had to be a better sacrifice, i.e. Christ. And he tells you that in verse 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands. Again, think about this for a second. Why didn't Jesus just walk into the temple? Lay down on the altar and say, hey, high priest, here I am. Take me out. Just slay me right here. He didn't do that because his was an inauguration of a new covenant. And he says, which are copies, but he went into heaven itself. I recall, and I don't mind using his name, Dr. Chance, William Jewell College, great, good, moral man, taught Bible at Jewell, and we were going through the images of the Bible was the name of the class or something like that. And we went to Hebrews, and he read through this, and I remember this, this is the spring of 2006, very clearly. He looked at us and says, isn't this the best fake language about what Jesus came to do? He said, this is just, a, this is just like, a, it's like an author just creating a scene. But Jesus didn't really do that, did he? Friends, if you believe that Jesus didn't actually do what he just said, that we're just like writing a story that he went to heaven, but he never actually is in heaven, then you don't have a Jesus of the Bible, do you? We don't have a copy. It says what? The literal reading of the word is he went into heaven itself. Not a picture of heaven, not a, not a, a symbol of heaven, but heaven itself. Why? To appear on the presence of God on our behalf. What is Jesus doing for you? He's there for you, 24-7, 365. He's always there for you. There's that goofy State Farm commercial where the guy calls State Farm in the middle of the night. You remember this one? And his wife, he's talking to him, and, and uh, uh, his wife picks up the phone and says, what's your name? And the agent says his name. It's like Bob. or J J You all know this story. <laughs> Jake from State Farm. And the wife gets mad because he th she thinks that her husband's calling another lady in the middle of the night, and she says, Jake, what kind of pants are you wearing? Khaki pants. State Farm's there 24-7, 365. That's good for us if you have that insurance. But our Savior, when you call him up and say, Jesus, what are you doing? I'm up here interceding for you, and I don't stop for you. And guess what I'm wearing? I'm wearing those same nail prints that are here, the spear in my side. I'm there for you. The principle secured is that when Jesus comes, is that he came on your behalf forever and ever and ever and ever. And he goes on in verse 25, and he says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. This is why in the Lord's Supper, we do not believe the body and blood of Christ literally come out in the elements that we'll celebrate next week. We believe it's symbolic. He adds the high priest had to repeatedly enter. For verse 26, then he would not have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, verse 26, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
done, done, done. You don't have to re-crucify Jesus every time you meet among God's people. That's weird. That's why we don't wear crosses with Jesus still on it. We wear an empty cross because he got down from that cross and busted out of the grave, right? That's what we believe. If you are an underliner, your Bible should have repeatedly, repeatedly, or something like that in verses 25 or 26. What I would do if I were you, I'd circle it and I'd put a, like, a, like you're Xing it out because he didn't sacrifice himself repeatedly. Verse 26 says he sacrificed himself once. So grateful for that. As we enter this last part, I want to talk about what this means. Because in doing this, Jesus brings up, or, or the writer of Hebrews brings up about Jesus in the last days. Verse 27 says it's destined or uh, appointed for a man, that's a general term, in men or women, to die once and then face the judgment. We often quote that in evangelism. If, you, if people bring it up, they're, they're, especially with Hindus who believe you can be reincarnated over and over and be a cow one time and a pizza box the next and a Ferrari the next, whatever, you know, fill in the blank. But you're destined to die once. There's no reset button. There's no purgatory. There's no soul sleep. There's no uh, annihilationalism. You die once and then what happens? Judgment. Who is the audience he's writing to? It's Christians. We've said it once, we'll say it again. Christian, you are free from the judgment that comes to unbelievers. The unbelievers have two destinies. They die and then they face a judgment. When you die, you stand before God, not on the basis of whether you know Jesus, but on the basis of what you did for Jesus. Does that make sense? So some of you, I don't want you to walk out of here thinking, whoa, boy, I, I gotta stand before Jesus and, and tell him how good of a Christian I was. No, that, yeah, sort of. But you're not there because you're, you're not saved. If you're not saved here today, if you don't know Jesus, you stand before God in absolute judgment. And Revelation 20 tells us that God flees away, or the, uh, heaven and earth flee away from this God who's on his throne. It's gonna be a terrible day. But I just wanna walk you through some principles that apply back to how this principle secured, what it means for the last day, and what Christ has done for us. You bear with me. If you are a reader of your emails, you saw this on Tuesday in Theology Tuesday. If you've read it already, I'm sorry. You're gonna get it again. Remember repetition? It's coming, all right? You got that. What does this mean for us about the last day? First off, it means, and you see that on your screen there, is that what you do today is shaped by what you believe about tomorrow. If you don't believe that you're gonna stand in judgment someday, then yeah, go do whatever you want with your life. Why are you here? Get out of church. Go somewhere else because there's no reason for you to be here. But if you're a Christian, you wanna be here because you wanna prepare the best for that day, not because you're gonna lose your salvation, but because you wanna make the much of your life about the God of salvation. Does that make sense? Second thing I want you to know about the last day, and Pastor Nelson read this, and it's all over scripture. It's in 2 Corinthians, it's in Romans, it's in 1 Corinthians 4, it is all over the place. But number two, and Amy, if you'll put that one up for us, is everyone will face the judgment of Jesus Christ. Everyone. Bill Gates, Elon Musk, from the financial side, whoever won that $1 billion, mega millions, or whatever that one person is, is probably never gonna show their face again in the lottery, down to the poorest of poor in Calcutta or Bangladesh or wherever they are. Everyone will stand before the judgment of God. It's a leveling thing, isn't it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for all will stand before the judgment of God. 
But Christian, take heart. Your security is based in Christ and you are free from your sin. This is not for you necessarily. But third, I want you to see this again. If you're not a Christian, on that last day, number three, if you are born once, you will die twice. But if you are born twice, you will die only once. Sounds like something you get in a cookie at a Chinese restaurant, doesn't it? <laughs> Think about it for a second. If you are born naturally one time and you die, or you're born, you die twice. You die naturally, but you die spiritually in hell forever. But if you're born twice, you're born naturally from your mother, and you are born above by the Spirit working in your life, John chapter 3, you're born, uh, being born again, then you die one time, and that's it because you are never gonna die again because you will live forever with this God. You may die once, but you will live forever with him, not in death anymore. Number four, I want you to see this, is that when you die, Jesus, if you will, will look into your eyes and you will know, number four, beyond a doubt, a hundred things that you pretended were unsure. What do I mean by that? A lot of things that you believe here but have the little doubts, hey, I know that's what it says, but we'll wait and see. Well, I hope so. I, I really think it's gonna be that way. When you get to heaven, you're gonna be blown away first by the magnitude of who God is and what he stands for, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But you're gonna be blown away by the benefits of knowing the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because your eyes will see everything he's done for you without sin, without prejudice, without veiling. You will see him by faith that has been fulfilled that now becomes sight. That it will be the last day. But on the flip side, number five, judgment day is gonna be crazy, friends. Can we put it in so many words? There is gonna be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are gonna be cries and screams for fairness. There are gonna be people who are yelling out, God, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, and words I cannot share from the pulpit. And God will look at them and say, away from me, you evildoer. I have nothing to do with you. Go to your promised inheritance. It's gonna be crazy. But I want you to know, if you know Christ, your eyes will see as he sees, and you will be thankful for every move that he makes because every move that he makes is fair, just, holy, and is loving because they had a chance, but they refused the offer. Number six, many consider warnings about such things, about judgment day, about sin to be hateful now. But on judgment day, those words, those invitations, those cries to come to Christ will be some of the most loving words that were ever uttered. You can be a jerk for Jesus and miss the point of sharing Jesus. You can be the biggest mm, for Jesus and, oh, but I shared the gospel, Pastor. Well, good for you. But did you do it lovingly? Did you do it humbly? Did you do it as one be beggar leading another beggar to bread? But friends, don't be afraid to speak hard truth to people. You will lose friends. You may lose church members. You may lose your job. I don't know. But if we are speaking forth the gospel Jesus gave that spoke twice as much about hell than it did about heaven, we're gonna not make friends. 
but we do it in a way that reminds us that we are humble because God has humbled us in our sin and we're just pointing people back. And when they get mad at you, just as God told Samuel, Samuel, they're not mad at you, they're mad at me. They want a king, not because of you, but because they're mad at me. When people get mad, they're ultimately mad at God. Just remember that. And all the babies said, amen. That's right. Number seven, bear with me, number seven, on Judgment Day, we will be surprised how differently God evaluates things than we do. Church size, who's in, who's out, who was faithful, who was not faithful, who was a big-time preacher and who was some obscure guy out in the middle of the jungle, whatever. Don't judge things by appearance with spiritual eyes on this level. Be careful how you judge. Be careful declaring someone to be a Christian or not. Unless it is true, they've denied basics of the faith. Number eight, it sure seems true that on the last day, many will regret using their influence to promote and defend earthly politicians. Tuesday, this church turns into a voting block and we're grateful to do so for our country and all the neighborhood and all the good things. But be careful where you plant your flags, friends. In two years, we get to vote for a new cycle of people in Washington, D.C. Be careful where you plant your flags. It is okay to support candidates. That is your freedom in Christ. But don't go so as far as to put your Christian testimony online for people just because you want to win something for your neighborhood or your county. Be very careful. And how many pastors who lined up with politicians over the years get their pats on the back and their minute in the sun on judgment day will be reamed by God because of their influence not used for the gospel. Number nine, when you stand before God on judgment day, and I will hurry through these, we'll wish that we showed more severity with our own sin and more charity towards the sins of others and more mercy to our fellow followers. I'll keep that up for a minute. How often, guys, as we think about what Christ has forgiven us from, do we point fingers at other people and say, well, I'm not as bad a sinner as they are. My heart's not as bad. Look at what they, can you believe what that Christian did? Can you believe what she said? Oh, yeah, and with the thoughts that went through your mind just a minute ago, sir, ma'am, pastor, can you imagine? I believe on judgment day, we'd wish we'd been much less severe with people. You say, well, pastor, how does this work? One moment you're telling us to speak the truth about hell and judgment and all these things, and the next moment you're saying, we, we might regret the severe words that we said. And Pastor Nelson would look at you and say, yes. As a parent, you can be severe and firm with your kids while still being loving and speaking to them mercy and truth and grace and showing them the way. So it, true it is with us. God showed you your sin, yet he said, I love you, and I came to die for you. The principle secured. Number 10, if you're unconvinced of hell, you won't be compelled to call people to heaven. Every year when Ligonier Ministries puts out their state of the church of theology, the number of people who believe in hell in conservative churches goes down a few points. Christian, I struggle with hell sometimes too. Can I be completely transparent with you? I struggle with it. Not because I don't believe it's true, but because as a human, I look at it and think, how could... And then I step back and say, he's God. He can do what he is. He's in heaven. Guys, we believe in a literal hell that literally exists, that is forever, where people will go who deny Jesus Christ. That's it. But if you don't believe in that, then you won't believe that 
Jesus' sacrifices we're sharing with other people because why share if there's no judgment to come? Number 11, the greatest tool that God has or Satan has for you is distraction. Do you know why the writer of Hebrews banged it into their heads over and over and over about Jesus Christ? Because they got distracted by daily life. Problems came up, children cried, marriages got in trouble, people died, their job was on the line, they didn't know where their food was gonna come from. The devil's greatest distraction for you to live for Jesus is to keep you away from Jesus. Be careful. Don't lose light of these things. Lastly, let us never take comfort that our sins are different than any other person's. On that last day, verse 28 tells you that your sins have been secured because of what Christ has done for you. But friends, the same sin you have is the same sin that sent Jesus to the cross is the same as someone else's. Be careful. I'm gonna close with that. That was a longer conclusion than I'm used to. The summary is this. Jesus died for you. He forgave you. He's coming for you. He secured himself for you. And on that day of judgment, you're gonna be okay because Christ is okay. Will you bow your heads with me this morning as we close out? Thank you for your patience as we walk through.